Why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians? That's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. Um, I hope you guys came here this morning. Probably, I would imagine, we're not too dissimilar. That it's easy for us to come to church and gatherings like this, just oftentimes more so out of it, just what we do, as opposed to a drive that fuels it that says, we are going to go meet with God. Like We're actually going to go and meet with God. We're going to meet with God's people. And this God that we get to meet with is, is a generous, loving, kind, welcoming God. Um, the reason why I say that we're probably not too dissimilar in this is that a lot of us, I would imagine, um, don't necessarily cognitively think of it like that. We just tend to think of it, we're going to go to church. Uh, we're going to have to scrambled to try to find some parking spot and if we're unlucky we have to park over by food for less and we've got to walk and we've got to deal with crowds and people and not being able to find a seat and have to listen to long announcements and deal with a long sermon and listen to loud music or not enough music or too short of music or and the tendency is for us to sort of miss the main point uh for which we gather and it's god to meet with god so what I want to do this morning as we begin to really jump into this is uh, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Ephesians, which we've started uh, back in January. We're going to continue to go through that. So why don't you guys open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. We're just going to look at two verses today. Um, I mentioned to you guys last week that as we started looking into this kind of little last section, oftentimes described as a doxology, um, let me also just add real quick before I jump in. If you guys need Bibles, um, raise your hands. We have ushers that are joyously eager to get you some Bibles. So raise your hands, and they'll be happy to get you some. If not, you guys typically know that we have some in the back back there. So just raise your hands if you need a Bible, and you can open up to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, uh, please feel free to keep this. It's just our, our gift to you. We want you guys all to have a Bible. So uh, I mentioned that this is such a rich section. There's a lot going on here. A lot to cover. It's very multifaceted, and it's full of uh, these snapshots of God's beauty. And uh, rather than trying to run through it very quickly and move uh, abruptly through it, we wanted to sort of slow down a little bit our pace and to kind of drink in what Paul is talking about. He uses rich language. In fact, um, maybe if you've ever studied this section of Scripture, in fact, these two verses that we're going to be taking a look at here today are actually full of superlatives, meaning it's, this is like one of the areas of passages in the Scripture. There's really not many other passages in Scripture that are like this in which Paul uses massive words, almost like made-up words, just to describe the greatness and the grandeur of who God is and what he's describing with regard to this God. And so, um, again, I think our tendency is to want... Quick spirituality. Our tendency is to want to grow fast. And our tendency is to want to move from point A to point, you know, S uh, without all the in-betweens. We just want to sort of drop into some sort of a cosmic spiritual wormhole to accelerate our spiritual growth. But the reality is there is no quick fix. There is no quick growth. There is no quick maturity. It takes time. It takes time for us to be willing to just pause, to slow down, to stop, to consider, to think about, to meditate upon God who wants to reveal himself to us. And so I want to do that this morning as we sort of slow down a little bit, even more so than what we've done. In fact, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, uh, this is actually today's kind of the slowest 
pace that we've gone through up until this point. I think most of the time we've covered an average between you know, five to maybe up to 11 passages at a time. Today we're just going to really try to look at two um, if we're able to even get through these two. So um, I'm going to read them to you. And then um, I will pray, and then we'll begin to try to unpack this and understand what Paul has to say to us here today. So Ephesians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, Paul says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Do you guys hear that little popping? Is that me? My cell phone's on. I'm going to turn it off. It didn't help it. Oh, it's an amp. How do I turn this off? Seth, am I going to break your amp? Okay, there we go. I think I fixed it. Seth Roberts. Can someone tell Seth Roberts when they come back up for worship to make sure he turns his amp on? He's a pretty smart guy. I'm sure he'll figure it out. All right. I was going to pray, wasn't I? (laughs) That's too bad. I have no idea where I'm at right now. God, we need your help. And uh, we don't want to just simply read through this and move on quickly. Briskly, God, we want to just allow you to uh, bring your word into our hearts and, God, to let it move us and transform us and change us. And, God, we truly want to be changed people. We realize, God, that seldom do we ever really look in our lives and, in a very honest way, and just realize we need help. And that's part of a problem. Um, and so, God, we ask you right now that you would just allow us to pause, to momentarily slow down to allow you to speak to us and transform us and change us in the ways that you desire to. So we humbly, God, we want to humbly submit and surrender our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our affections, uh, our sin, all of these other things, God, that we find that are just a part of us to you to do the work that you desire to do in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. So, this is typically called a doxology, and doxology simply comes from two words, doxa and logos, which is, uh, logos means word or a statement, doxa means praise, so this is a word of praise. So Paul's kind of finishing this train of thought that he's been talking about, and the train of thought that he's been uh, addressing and talking about really has to do with uh, what God has been doing, um, and the major thing that God has been doing that Paul's been marveling in is this work that we would call in the church. And we've been really trying to point this out. The church is not just something you go to. It's not a building you sit in. It's not located particularly somewhere. In fact, the reality is, is the church is ubiquitous. It's everywhere, at any point, at any time throughout all ages, that it is a body of people within whom the Spirit of God dwells. It's everywhere. And so it's, even, even though it's important for us to understand this, because we are a church. We are not the church. We are a church. We make up the church. Um, and we are not the only church here on the Central Coast. It's important for us to understand this, because what can happen oftentimes is we can become myopic. We begin to look at our 
little group, the way that we do our stuff, the way that we sing our music, and how the word gets preached, and the type of sermons that get sermonized here, and the technique, and the methodology in which all these things, we do things, and our particular preferences, we tend to think that this is the way to do things, and therefore we tend to sort of look uh, with skepticism on others. It's important for us to understand that the message that Paul is marveling is that God has called out from every nation, tribe, and tongue a people that will be part of his universal church. This is, this is mind-blowing to Paul because now the idea or the notion that Gentiles, we've been kind of addressing this for a long time, that the Gentiles are really anybody who's not Jewish. Jews sort of uh, had a tendency to kind of view themselves as unique or special because God actually describes them as being my chosen people. The tendency oftentimes is to begin to think of chosenness as being sort of a mark of favor. Like God's, God looks at the Jews and says, I like you guys far better than the Philistines, and so therefore I will choose you. That is not at all what chosenness implies. Chosenness means God saying, I'm going to choose you because... I just need somebody to reflect me. And so God even says, I didn't choose you because you were brilliant, because you were great, because you had good looks, because you were powerful. And God, in fact, says, in fact, you had none of those things. None of those things. I chose you because I'm great. And I wanted to demonstrate my greatness through you so that you who have nothing with me can be seen as a nation with great abundance so that you who are unlovely would, through me who is lovely, would begin to be seen as lovely to this world. So you would demonstrate something of who I am. So what Paul is recognizing is that all throughout the ages that the idea of uh, non-Jews or Gentiles being saved, per se, if you want to look at it that way, being saved, being rescued, was not something abstract. It was situated within the Bible, Old Testament, all Jews recognized that God was going to do or God was doing a work. And so even within the New Testament, um, you have provisions, if you want to think of it this way, for non-Jews to be part of Judaism. Does that make sense? But what Paul was marveling over was that God doesn't just stop there. Part of God's mysterious plan that Paul describes, it was a mystery hidden in Christ, which now has been, in these latter times, been revealed. Paul's saying, I, now I realize the fullness of what God was doing. That it's not just that Gentiles would be just saved, but that Gentiles would actually be shown the same privilege, the same love, the same uh, generosity, the same uh, familiarity with God, the same riches of his wisdom and grace God says, I'm going to give to the Gentiles. In other words, what God is doing, what God was up to, what God has done through the church is he's taken both Jews, who are his chosen people, and the Gentiles who are outside of this status, and he's fused them, brought them all together in one so that all, both Jew and Gentile alike, are recipients of God's grace. And therefore, they're both at the table being shown the same level of favor. Not favorites over here, Jews, and semi-favorites or secondary favorite or Redheaded stepchild over here will just accept you because it's what I do because I'm God, so therefore I'll just accept you. But the reality, Paul is saying, no, no, no. The marvel of all marvels is that Gentiles have been shown the same great, loving, generous favor as God's shown to the, to the Jews. 
This is the church. This is beautiful, what Paul's saying, is that what God is doing in the church is he's creating one body, one family, not two, not three, not a harem. Christ is not coming back for a harem. He's not marrying churches. He is coming back for a church. That reality, let me just, I I, I can only say this and move on, and I'll just let you wrestle with this and think about this, kind of like a hand grenade. I'll throw it in the middle of the room and shrapnel might, might fly, but you have to kind of deal with the consequences of that. So think about it this way. If we live from the theological prep, uh, uh, presupposition that God is coming back, not for churches, plural, plural but a church, singular, singular, that should impact and affect the way that you look at other Christians that are not part of your little flavor or tribe or group. That should change the way that you view if it doesn't, you haven't understood that little hand grenade I just dropped in the middle of you. So you have to deal with that at another time. And I'll have to deal with that another time. But I've got to move on. So the point that I'm making is that Paul is marveling with this reality. That God has made in one family, one body, this thing called the church. Composed of both Jew and Gentile, like shown the same amount of favor. And so Paul's been marveling. He's been praying. He's been talking about how wonderful all of this is with regard to what God has done. And now Paul is going to basically summarize. And this is where he, in this doxology, this sort of word of praise is sort of summarizing thoughts. And um, it's a prayer. It's really what we just read is really a prayer. Paul is sort of summarizing by saying, now unto God. He's addressing God. And so from this doxology, this prayer, we can learn, I would say, just a couple things at least uh, about what Paul and how Paul is praying. So I want to look at these two specific things real quickly. I'll make some statements and comments, and then basically we'll, we'll, we'll finish and think about how this sort of works its way into our lives. So what I want to look at are two things, the first of which is we'll take a look at the what of prayer, and then secondly, we'll take a look at the why of prayer. So uh, the, the why sort of tries to wrestle with the purpose. Like, what is God up to? What's God doing within this world? And why pray? Why uh, bring Jew and Gentile together and pray and address God and seek God. But let's first of all talk about the what of prayer, and this really kind of tackles, uh, for the most part, verse 20. The why of prayer, I should say, the what of prayer. So first of all, I'll just make a couple comments with regard to this. First of all, the prayer is, really, it's a coming to God. It's a coming to God. First and foremost, prayer is simply this. It's a coming to God. So take a look at verse 21 again. It says this, now to him. Just pause right there, stop. Now to him. Paul's point is that th- this is what prayer is. is. It's, it is simply coming to God. It's coming to God like a father, Jesus tells us. He says, when you pray, Jesus informs, speaking to his disciples. He says, when you guys pray, pray to God as a father. Because that's who he is. I think we oftentimes overlook the beauty in that Simplicity. And I think to some degree, there's a tendency for us to think of God in almighty terms, in these extreme terms, because the Bible addresses God in those terms, and he is all of that. He is all of that. He is all worthy of being addressed as the almighty maker of the universe, all king of all things, and and all of these superlative type phrases that we can bring up. God is all of those things. But at the same time, Jesus tells us something that's astounding. He says, listen, when you pray to God, yes, he's almighty, yes, he's all-powerful, yes, he's the creator of all things, but he is your father. This is amazing to think about this. 
that God is our Father, that God actually does what God does to reveal to us that we're not alone in this universe. We're not orphaned. I mean, really, it's what, what, what Jesus is trying to indicate to us, and the tendency is, the reality is for us in our sin, is uh, when you look at kind of the beginning of creation, when God created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were son and daughter of God. And yet, the sin of Adam and Eve, partaking of the tree, of course, but the real sin underneath that action was sort of an emancipation from that, saying, we think we can make do in this world, in this environment, in this garden, in this universe on our own. We don't need info or input from you, God. We can kind of navigate our way ourselves. And so really the consequences of their sin, yes, the Bible says, is death. But the Bible also uses a host of other types of language to identify what that death looks like. It's one of the reasons why there's multiple metaphors to use to describe what death looks like. I mean, if you stick around long enough and you read your Bible long enough, uh, you will come across all sorts of metaphors. One of the metaphors you might come across is it looks like being a nation, an exile, no longer living in your land. If you stick around long enough, it looks like you were once married and you had a rich uh, spouse, and yet now you are divorced from that rich spouse because... Your sin has alienated you from them, and ultimate alienation within the context of marriage is divorce. If you stick around long enough, it looks like a son who goes off into a far-off country and has squandered everything that he has. But if you stick around long enough, in each of those things, the storyline of the Bible is that this God who rightly created us and lovingly wants to restore us brings back the exile from this foreign land takes back and receives back the spouse which has squandered what they have and receives back the son which has taken all that he's had and squandered. And he receives back. And this is, this is what he's saying. A Paul uses language that says, look, you were once basically for the most part all in, for all intents and purposes orphaned and yet God has brought you in like a father who's adopted you. That should bring you comfort and hope. You're not alone. You don't need to act like you're alone. Um, the other night, my family and I, we were watching a program, um, Undercover Boss. Any Undercover Boss fans out there? Okay, you, you can be proud to admit that. It's a great show. Anyways, we hadn't watched it for a long time, and um, we sat down, we watched it. We watched this one. One caught my attention. It was actually about O'Neill, O'Neill Wetsuits. All right. Um, I grew up surfing. That was actually the very first wetsuit I ever owned was an Onia wetsuit. So I'm like, Onia, oh, that looks kind of cool. I'll watch that. So long and short, I, this is a spoiler alert, by the way. So uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to totally spoil it for you. But the point of the matter is, uh, there is this one employee that's working in a shop, all right? Um, if you know any, I, I, all right, in short, Undercover Boss is basically about a boss that owns a company. He's like the CEO. He goes undercover, all right, you know, puts on some sort of a different facial hair or look or whatever, and he goes undercover and begins to work in the stores and gets to meet the employees. The employees have no idea who he is. And so as he's interfacing with them, working with them, kind of hearing their story, discovering areas in which the company's kind of messed up or needs to relook at policy or change and shape, reshape the way it functions and whatnot. So um, the, the boss or the owner, CEO of O'Neill, I can't remember his name, he goes to this one retail store, and there he's at the store. He's like some kid, like, I don't know, 23, 24, 25 years old, total typical stoner surfer guy. All right, just absolute stereotypical Jeff Spicoli surfer guy. 
uh, definitely stoned, all right? There's no doubt about it. So he's talking with the, this guy, all right? He shows up. He's like, hey, I'm here, you know, doing a reality show. It doesn't say it's Undercover Boss, but I'm doing a reality show, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, earn my own business and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so as he's kind of on the floor learning the ropes from, you know, this stoner kid, the stoner kid's like, you know what? You know what, dude? I got some really good weed. You want to buy some good weed? And he's mortified. The owner of the company's like, oh, my gosh, I got an employee on the floor who's selling weed. This is not good. And not only that, but he has, continues to talk with him. The guy who's on the floor selling weed also says, you know what? I hate O'Neill clothes. They're just straight up lame. And the, you can just see in the guy's face, he's like looking at the cameras like, what? Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. Like, I have an employee working for me that hates my clothes and is selling weed. So me and my daughters are like, this guy is so canned. Like, he is so fired. There's no doubt about it. And he will deserve to be fired. Okay, so here's the spoiler. At the end of the show, this is where the punchline just gets awesome. At the end of the show, it always concludes with the owner sitting down with every employee that he, that he interfaced with. And he reveals himself. So you can just kind of get this sense of, like, you walk up, and there they are sitting with the owner. And he's like, hey, do you remember me? They're like, uh, yeah, you are so-and-so. He's like, yeah, uh, do you know who I am? They're like, uh, no. He's like, I'm the CEO. They're like, you, you're, I, this, uh, a, so he's sitting down with this Jeff Spicoli dude. All right, do you guys know who Jeff Spicoli is? Does anybody not know who Jeff Spicoli is? Are you kidding me? Thank you. You guys just made me feel really, really old. Fast times at Ridgemont High. Has anybody ever heard of that? Who's not heard of Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Both of you. Okay. Just going to have to Google it. I got to keep moving on. So he sits down with this kid and basically is like, hey, look, what do you think about the whole deal? You know, you're, you're selling me pot and you hate, do you, re- he's all, do you really hate O'Neill? He's like, yeah, dude, it's like lame. I wouldn't even dress my five-year-old kid in that. And he's like, so my daughters and I were like, this kid deserves to be canned and fired and you know, and then all of a sudden, he's like, here's what I'm going to do. And now, there's a backstory to this. The kid, as he was on break with the owner, they were sharing the story. The kid basically says, you know, throughout my whole life, I've never had a dad. Um, I've had to raise myself. I've lived with my mom. I raise money. I give. So there's this sort of touching element to the whole story. So that's the backstory. You know, the kid's like, yeah, I've made bad choices. Yeah, I've gotten into drugs since a very young age. And yeah, my life's been pretty jacked up. But I've tried to do the best that I can to make the most of it. So you know the most of what he's made with his life is basically screw up. Like, like this kid deserves to be fired. This kid deserves to not be shown any type of love or care or affection or whatever because of the way that he's treated what has been given to him, which in this particular case, it was a job at a you know, shopping mall for O'Neill. And so the owner of the company basically says, here's what I'm going to do. And we're just waiting for him to say, you're fired. You know, like go Donald Trump on him. But he goes, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I want to give you another chance. And I want you, because I know you never had a dad, I want you to come work for me and be my personal assistant for the whole week and you will work with my top executives and we will train you. We will show you everything you need to do and know. And if you succeed in that, it may open up some new possibilities and doors for you for a future. And the kid, he asks him, what would you like to do? The kid's like, I don't deserve this. I deserve to be fired. But I can't pass this up. And that, to me, is one of the most unbelievable displays of grace. In essence, what he was saying is, I will be your father. You didn't have a father. 
And by not having a father, you lived like an orphan child. And the choices you made were choices that were consistent with an orphan child that would lead to your destruction and death in this life. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer to be your father and show you grace and train you, show you the ways. And Paul is marveling at this. He's saying this is what God has done to Gentiles. They were without a father. They were orphaned. God has brought them in and says, you are my children. So prayer, in the very first, most simplistic way, is simply coming to God, trusting, having confidence. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about God? Because the reality is, some of us might hear that and be like, God's powerful. I don't really know if I believe that. And you, like that kid, could be looking at your life and realizing, I made some major mistakes, major missteps, major mess-ups in my life. I am deserving of being cast out, castigated, shunned, abandon all of these things, just like this child, this kid on the, on the shelf. And yet God is saying, I don't want to do that to you. I want to extend grace. I want you to come in. I want you to be my disciple. Follow me. Follow my life, and I'll change you. Because in its most simplistic form, prayer is just simply believing that and coming to God. It's trusting him. God, I, I, I don't... I don't know how you're going to make my life right, but I trust that you will. You said you will. I'm going to trust you to do that. That's what we see here, is that Paul is identifying the fact that that's what prayer is. It's just simply coming to God. The second thing that we see, move on, is that it's really addressing a God who has abundance and moves freely according to his love and power. And it's really the end of verse 21 where he says, this, Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, this is where the superlatives come to play because what Paul is saying is that, okay, for example, now unto him who is able. The word able kind of moves into this to do far more abundantly. Some translations actually might even say God is able to do super abundantly. Uh, In other words, like Paul is actually kind of creating compound words to point out how absolutely unbelievably powerful and strong and adept and capable God is to do the absolute impossible. Now in the immediate context, the immediate context of what Paul is astounded about God's superabundant power and love working together, we looked at this a little bit last week, when God's superabundant power and love came together, it worked the most unbelievable miracle in culture and society within the world, within the universe, where God took Jews and Gentiles who were completely at opposite ends of the spectrum of one another, and God brought them together as one family. Paul's like, I'm blown away by this. This was, is, no one else can have done this. I mean, we can look around the world today, we can see that nations can form around two rival kingdoms or two rival tribes coming together. It's, that's not unusual. In fact, that's one of the big issues that's kind of going down right now in the Middle East, like, for example, with Iraq, is that, or even uh, uh, where Gaddafi, uh, you know, his former kingdom. The reality is, is that those strong rulers that basically ruled their regions with fear were renowned for bringing together rival tribes to say, you're going to live together. And there was, to some degree, more or less, throughout Iraq, throughout Libya, peace. It wasn't real peace. It was a forced peace. It was a peace that basically said, if you cross our boundary lines, if you attack another tribe, if you, you know, as a Sunni Muslim attack, you know, another uh, form of Islam, then you will die, all right? We will execute you publicly. And so there was a sense of learning to live together in peace. But that's not the peace that Paul sees within the church. 
it's not two groups of people, Jew and Gentile, coming together, sort of gritting their teeth, saying, we're just going to make it all work. But Paul is marveling because what God has done, he's brought these two people together in that they love each other now. They're not being forced. They're at the same table, partaking of the same meal from the same hand of the Father, recipients of the same display of love. And Paul's like, this is, this is God's super abundance at work in this world, changing people's hearts, bringing them together. This is what the gospel does. It takes people that were formerly enemies and says, we're going to unite you together. And again, we, we live throughout a world and within a world in which this is always happening with regard to uh, distinctions and fragmenting and breaking apart and splintering and people driving wedges between each other. This happens on so many different levels. I mean, it happens even at really young ages. I mean, again, you can go back into like your memory banks back when you were in grade school. Like, you know, school is divided up by the haves and the have-nots. You know, the kids that are really good at running, you know, the ones that are always getting picked on dodgeball team, and then the other kids that like maybe a little bit chubby, and they're the ones that are not picked or selected, or they're not really good-looking. Uh, the ones that are really smart, from the ones that are not really smart, the ones that know how to read really good from those who really don't know how to read, uh, that, that happens at a very young age, and it just continues to happen. It becomes a little bit more refined the older we get, so that now we're here, you know, in the age ranges that we are, most of our church is between ages, you know, 18 to 35, and then beyond that, we divide, we make little distinctions, social distinctions between ourselves, and we're like, you know, here's the cool kids over here, they hang out over here, and they kind of separate from those that aren't that cool, here's the people that in the fraternities and sororities, they hang out with their little group and cliques, and they avoid those that don't, and this happens even older people in life that have kids. They're like, you know, we got kids and are really young. We only hang out with people that have kids that are really young. Yeah, some of it's just kind of natural because you are in the same stage of life. That makes sense. But when it comes over, jumps over in this realm where like I purposefully avoid those that are unlike me, Paul's saying you're actually going against the work that God is doing to bring all together. And what Paul is saying is that in the church, this super abundant grace of God has been at work to bring together two parties that were in opposition with each other together in one family. And it's really addressing this God, coming to this God, and recognizing that He is a God that has great abundance of power and He moves according to His love and power. And we've kind of spent a lot of time last week looking at this idea of God's love and power. But so I want to address that right now. But the point that I want to really point out and describe is that it's coming to God. It's addressing this God who has great abundance. And so I think it's what Paul wants us to understand is that he is able, meaning he is powerful. The word able is, I think is the word dunamis, which is, you know, the, the, the Greek word for power. We get the, another English word from there like dynamite or dynamic, that God has power to do um, above, more abundantly. This is the idea of above above what's able. So think of it this way. Here's God's ability. It's able. God's able. He's capable. He does great things. What Paul's saying is that God actually goes above what he's able to do beyond and does above that, above and beyond that. So if you want to think of it this way, I think what Paul is trying to describe is that God is a God that operates, if you think of it this way, in extravagance. He operates in ways that are way beyond our comprehension, our understanding, that God's love God's power are two elements of his character that are inexhaustible. Chew in that for a moment. Say la. Think about that. 
that God's love and God's power are inexhaustible. You know what that means? Is that your circumstances in your life will never, ever, 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 ever drain the love and the power of God dry. There's more enough for you and for anybody that calls upon this God. And Paul, again, he can say this because in the back of his mind, he has an event that he keeps drawing from. It keeps fueling him. It keeps his imagination sprawling with images of hopefulness. That what he's looking at constantly is realizing that God was at work in Christ. The power that was at work in Christ that rose Christ from the dead conquering our greatest enemy, death. How do we know it's our greatest enemy? Someone might ask. Well, because one out of one die. Right? I mean, the reality is, is like, like we, we know death is our greatest enemy. Porn is not our greatest enemy. Because not everybody, a lot of people, statistics point that a lot of people struggle with porn. It's not everybody, though. Murder. It's not our greatest enemy. Some will Murder. Some will kill brutally, but not everybody. It's not our greatest enemy. It's not the thing that every single person will somehow be affected by, but death is. And Paul is marveling over the fact that God has actually taken his son, raised him from the grave, because he is motivated by love. And that in Christ, all who are in Christ will rise with him. And Paul keeps being fueled by this reality that this is a God of super abundance that keeps giving good gifts to his children because he is a God that has gifts to give. No doubt, because Paul was a good Jew, he would have been familiar, no doubt completely familiar, perhaps even memorized the entire story of the Exodus. That Paul recognized he was coming no doubt from the background, the historical background that the Jews once were slaves in Egypt. They were once in exile. They were once those who were cast off because of their sin, and yet God rescued them. Not because they had anything to offer God, not because God was gaining some sort of great uh, thing or benefit perhaps from them, but what Paul recognizes is that God was working in them. God delivered his people. And what the Jews had to, at some point, come to realize is that like, God is a better God to serve and follow than Pharaoh, because Pharaoh just constantly has nothing to give other than commands to make more bricks. To go into the brickyard, make more bricks, work away, work slavishly, work feverishly, making more bricks to satisfy Pharaoh, who never is satisfied. He has no rest, no peace to give. Pharaoh has none of that to offer, and yet God takes his people, brings them to himself, and says, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a day of rest, because I'm a God of rest, and I give you rest. And what we see with God is this amazing God that says, I have abundance. I work in extravagance. I have super abundant power and love to give to you because my love and power is inexhaustible. And Paul uses his words to point out that this is the type of God that we come to. We address. We address this God who has abundance and moves according to his love and power. And he invites us. This is what Jesus says. This is why he says that God invites us to come to him like a father. 
rather than being orphans, rather than being alone. One of our greatest needs, we can say, is to be loved. And I think that's true. But I think another great need that we want is we want to have our pain affirmed. And what we have in God is both. We have a God that doesn't just simply say, I love you, what I've done, Jesus came. But we have a God who says, I love you, and here's to the extent, to the degree in which I will demonstrate my love for you, that I will enter into your pain. I will not just simply nod my head at your pain, but I will enter into the pain and sorrow that you are going through at this moment, at this time, to affirm the suffering, the shame, the pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the betrayal, the sense of feeling alone in this world. And we have this God that then invites us and says, come to me. I know your pain. I know your sorrow. And I know how to make it from wrong to right. I'm a God of superabundance. I'm a God that works in superlatives. I'm a God that takes that which is over like a curse, over like a nasty funk, over all creation and lift it. This is what he had done in his son. This is why really what prayer is, it's really coming to this God, but it's also coming to this God who is full of abundance. So I'm going to finish with this final thought, the why of prayer. Um, this kind of gets really at more of the purpose. Like, What is God up to? Um, I wrestled with actually starting with this one, but um, just to kind of paint sort of a broad picture, but I want to finish with this, and I'm almost done. Um, the why of prayer. And really, Paul summarizes in verse 21. So just listen to what verse 21 says. He says, To him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So part of this doxology is Paul wants us to understand that what God is actually up to in the cosmos, in the universe, is he's bringing his name glory. Bringing himself, in a sense, through what he's doing, Great glory. Now think of glory like this. It's kind of one of those abstract words that we really don't use very often. Um, and even if we do use it sometimes, we're not always absolutely aware. So if we were to like pause and stop and be like, okay, give us a definition of what glory is. I like to think of glory like this. Glory is sort of like the emanation of beauty. So something that's beautiful, that emanates, that sparkles. That idea of that which emanates from beauty is glory. Like what God is saying is obviously what glory is is something of great value, something that holds great uh, weight or weightiness or treasure within God's heart. And God's saying, here's what I'm up to in this world is I'm bringing about my glory upon the church, three things, upon the church, uh, in, uh, which is in Jesus, which is throughout this world from generation to generation, world without end. Uh, amen. And this is really what he's saying. So I want to break that down for you. Um, why don't you guys open your Bible real quick to the book of Habakkuk. I don't know if I have this on the screen or not. Uh, if I don't, I do have it up there. You guys are lucky. Habakkuk, why don't you open up there anyhow? Um, Habakkuk chapter 2, I want to read you just a couple of verses in verse 12 because I think uh, this sort of ties in to what God is up to and, um, and I'll make a couple comments and I'll close. Um, Hebrews chapter, or Habakkuk chapter 2, he says this, verse 12. I'll start with that verse, a couple of verses. Um, the main verse that I really want to focus on or emphasize is verse 14. It's a verse that most of us are familiar with. Uh, we've heard maybe at some point, maybe in a sermon, maybe from one of my sermons. Um, I want to give you the context for this because it's kind of a startling context. He starts off in verse 12. Um, actually, it starts off long before that, but um, moves to, uh, but verse 12, it says this, What sorrow waits 
you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption, has not the Lord of heaven's armies promised that the wealth of the nations will turn to ashes? He says, they work so hard, but all in vain. Verse 14, he says, for as the waters fill the sea, uh, this earth will be filled with the awareness of the glory of the Lord. Verse 15, he goes on, kind of closes off this little section. He says, what sorrow awaits those who make your neighbors drunk? You force uh, you force your cup on them and you, so that you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. So uh, the writer Habakkuk, he's a prophet, is writing about, he's writing about his own day and age. And if you were here for Easter, you, you remember I kind of gave a little bit of a background on some of the prophets. What the prophets did is they basically addressed the day and age in which they lived. But they didn't just address the day and age in which they lived, but they also had sort of this vivid imagination. They imagined what life would be like if Yahweh's people actually lived like Yahweh's people, instead of like the nations around them. See, this is the problem. Yahweh's people, instead of living like Yahweh's people, were living like the other nations around them. And the net result of them living like the other nations around them were basically the very same things that the other nations were self-destructing within. So for example, he points out, he says, the problem with the Jewish people in his day is he says, look, you guys have sorrow, sorrow is multiplied upon you guys over and over again. It's like you guys build these cities with all sorts of money that's gained through murder and corruption. And no matter how fortified your walls are, you're still constantly having those walls breached, meaning your cities, no matter how secure you are, it's kind of like in our day if we're like, you know what, I keep putting my money in the bank, I keep trying to uh, you know, build compound on my money, I keep trying to invest my money, but it keeps getting sucked up. Some, in other words, I, I keep trying to work hard, making more money, and it seems as if every bit of security, money that I built for myself just evaporates, is gone. And he finishes with this thought by saying, you guys, all you're doing is you're going around just getting drunk all the time. You're partying. You're buying more beer, more alcohol, so that all your friends can just keep getting drunk. These are ways to sort of uh, anesthetize yourself to the problems that are going on to narcoticize yourself against or beyond what is going on within your life. And he's saying, look, the, the, the problem is, is all of these things are adding to your self-destruction. They're not giving you life. They may give you a temporary sense of life or an illusion of life. But in the end, they just add to your own corruption and brokenness. And the prophet Habakkuk, in the very middle of that, imagines a day, a day in which God's glory would truly flood this planet where God's people would actually begin to reflect what it looks like to be God's people. And I want to finish with this thought because what Paul finishes in this little section here is he says, what God is up to in this world, to him be glory in the church, in Christ, from generation to generation. What Paul is saying is absolutely profound. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that if you just simply heard this, and nothing else, this will change your life. But you got to hear it. What Paul is saying is that this God, almighty God, who lives in superlatives, who's beyond all power, whose love works with power towards your good, what Paul is saying is that this is not just a God on the outside, on the abstract, working for your good just so that he can show how great you are. Paul is saying that this God actually views you church, you Christian, as his glorious treasure. 
How many of you are parents? Raise your hand. A lot of you. So those of you that aren't parents, probably the rest of the half of you, just got to believe me on this, all right? There's something that's innate about being a parent, all right? Listen up real quick. Almost done, I promise. There's something innate about being a parent that as being a parent, that as being a parent, a parent's uh, glory or shame are somehow inextricably linked to their children. I, I've been with parents who have had a child, you know, win a you know, volleyball tournament or has, you know, uh, won some sort of accolades for scholarship or some sort of accolades for, you know, good high honors scholastically, whatever the case is. Um, and there's a sense of beaming with joy. I've been with parents who just shortly afterwards just gave birth to a child who's perfectly healthy, and they're beaming with joy because somehow their glory is linked, their joy, their exuberance, their life is linked with that child and their ability to reflect properly who they are. I've also been with parents who have been absolutely devastated because their child got arrested or because their son got their girlfriend pregnant or somehow has done something horrifically, terribly wrong and they're deflated with a sense of shame. Parents don't ask for this. They don't want this necessarily. It's not something that they have to train themselves to do. It is just who they are. That a parent's joy... Parents' glory, parents' shame is somehow inextricably linked to their child. Now, on one hand, this idea can be very challenging because what Paul is saying is that as the church, when the church lives in a way that is underneath or below the standards, the life of God, the life-giving nature of God, in other words, when the church lives in such a way where they refuse to forgive, where they refuse to reconcile with people that they've been at odds with, when they simply live in drunkenness and living in such a low standard, what Paul is saying is that God's glory is not seen as glorious. The world looks at that and says, I don't get it. There's no distinction, no difference between you and the rest of the way of us operate. But like the prophet Habakkuk envisions, imagines a day in which God's glory will flood the earth as much as the waters cover the earth. And so what Paul is saying, at the same time, this arises not just simply to be a challenge, but also a comfort. Because you know what this means? Is that this means is that as we live in a way that just honors God, and as we understand this, as we live in such a way that this God has accepted us and has received us and loves us, and we live in such a way that reflects that, what this means is you don't have to worry about the opinions of others. You don't have to be bound by what others think about you. This actually affects, say, if you're in a boyfriend and girlfriend relationship and you have this tendency to be influenced, mastered by their opinion, that what's happening is that you are actually being shaped into the opinion that is probably not even consistent with the opinion of God. But if you understand what God is saying about you is that you are his glory, that God has somehow bound his total sense of value. God has given value to you in Christ, in this world, for all generations. Let me put it one other way. God looks at you as his greatest treasure. That's what Paul's saying. To the degree that you believe that, what that does is it raises your standard of living, the way that you live, how you live, 
so that rather than just simply living like an orphan, where you've got to be the one that's responsible for making the decisions of your life, instead you realize you have a father that loves you, that is living in this world of of superlatives. He has super abundant power at work in you to help you, to assist you, to strengthen you, to provide for you, to take care of you, to help you to overcome areas that are strategic in your life of sin, to give you victory over those things, to help you to forgive those who have offended you. To help you to be stewards of money in such a way that rather than being a slave to money, you are a master over money. and You can use money rather than it use and abuse you. And what happens is we begin to realize that our life's changed. I finished last week by suggesting that the way that we get really changed and transformed is by simply looking at Jesus, by gazing at Jesus until our hearts are changed. Now, I realize that probably could have spent some time kind of banging that out, looking at it a little bit, but I want to finish with this thought because really, if we think of it this way, if we can look at Jesus and realize who he is and what he's at work in doing in your life and go back to kind of to some degree what Paul is looking at, constantly drawing from, and we do the same thing, what will happen is it allows us to look at Jesus in that new light, to realize that For example, on the cross, Jesus, or in the garden, I should say, Jesus in the garden praying. Jesus is doing what we're talking about. We're talking about praying? Jesus was praying. In the garden, Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. Father, remove this pain, remove this suffering, remove this tragedy that's about to befall me. The same ways that you and I often does pray. We pray to God, we come to God, we come to God who's got abundance. We pray, God, help me out in my circumstances, help me out in my tragedy, help me out in my challenges. Jesus prayed just like that. He completely knows what it's like to be utterly in a period of just dependence. I'm dependent upon God to move. Jesus prays to the Father, and yet in Jesus' case, the Father says, no, I won't take this cup from you. The reason that we can look at that and absolutely have our hearts melted is because had the Father taken that cup from Jesus, then we would be forever lost. But because the Father said, I will not take the cup from you, you must drink it, you must be crushed, you must be oppressed, you must engage this pain, this sense of alienation, this sense of exile, this sense of divorce, so that those who are in exile and in states of divorce and in places of alienation and brokenness can actually be given a place that they call home. If you look at Jesus from that angle, from that perspective, and your heart warms, what that will do is it will draw you into this Father who loves you and who is at work in your life, bringing you into something that's profoundly great. What the Bible describes as his kingdom. It begins here. It goes on post-mortem. And one day, after death, God will give us a new body. And we'll place this new body into a brand new earth that has been restored and healed of all of its wounds and brokenness. And we will live, world without end, forever and ever, where there is no more tear, no more sorrow, no more shame, no more deception, 
No more duplicity. No more lies. There'll be God and God's people who are renewed. This is what God invites us into. And it doesn't begin after you die. It doesn't about you praying a prayer now so that one day when you die, you get to go to heaven. It's about right now, God invites you to come to this table to cast down, to lay aside your sin, your shame, those things that would have kept you. I'm going to invite you into that. I'm going to have the team come on up, and I want to finish by way of response. And here's how I want to do this. I'd like for us to just take a moment and pray to invite you into this, all of you guys. I realize maybe some of you here today, you're not Christians. I'm glad you're here. And for you, that might mean, will mean, you coming to God and just saying, God, I don't know much of who you are. What little I know maybe is just from this message. If there's truth to that, I want to come to you. I want to approach you. If you're a Christian, if you're somebody that maybe has been a Christian for a long time, and maybe these truths, these ideas have just, they've not warmed your heart. They've just been kind of cerebral. They've just been in your brain. They've never really made its way down in your heart. Your heart, in other words, is not melted. You're not really moved by these things. I'm going to invite you to be moved by these things. These things should radically melt us to the degree, to the point in which we want to be transformed and changed. I'm going to invite you to do that. One of the ways in which, ironically, the gospel invites us is God cares about this world. One of the reasons why we know that God cares so much about this world are the three elements God invites us into partake of initially as a Christian and to continue to do as a Christian have to do with bread, wine, and water, baptism. Three material elements in which God says, come, I love this world. I am in the process of restoring and rebuilding this world and I want you to invite you in to be part of this to first come to me to be changed and transformed to be given life in exchange for death to be given forgiveness in exchange for sinfulness and rebellion how about we all stand how about we all stand and um, let's just take a moment In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something. Um, Paul starts this little section here, I think verse 14. He says, I bow my knee. The posture of our body is, is not indicative necessarily of where our heart's at, but sometimes it can be. It should be to some degree. I mean, you can be on your knees and your heart's totally far from God. It's just a show. But if, if you're capable, if you're able, I want to invite you. If you want to stand, that's fine. If you want to get on your knees... Just get on your knees before the Father. And I want to take a moment and just quietly give you guys an opportunity just to address this God. Come to this God. Acknowledge who this God is. You want to do that standing up? That's fine. If you want to do that on your knees, that's fine. We have some rugs in the front just to get down before God. And then I'll, I'll pray. And then Trav will lead us into a song. We have communion in the back. I invite you to partake of the supper, the Lord's Supper. Describe it. Paul describes not taking of it in an unworthy manner. What that simply means, I believe, is to don't partake of it in a way which your lives are not congruent with it. In other words, the supper tells us that God invites all of us to come to him. All are welcome at the table. 
And if you are living in a way that is locked down on sin or you have people in your life in which you are refusing to allow in because you have chosen a path of unforgiveness over forgiveness, a path of alienation rather than acceptance. And yet you partake of the communion that is about acceptance and is about forgiveness of sins and is about cleansing and washing. Paul would say, don't eat or drink the cup in an unworthy manner that's incongruent with that. Confess your sin. Repent from that. Turn from that. And then enter in. So let's take a moment, all right? And just quiet our hearts, humble our hearts, and call out to God and pray to him, okay?